Hello there, and thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor here at Kingdom of the Lagos. We're outside, and today we're going to be talking about the orchestra of idolatry. So thank you for joining me. Again, this is Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. We're live outdoors. You might hear a few sounds with things going on. Hopefully that won't be too bad. But today, as we talk about the orchestra of idolatry, we're going to be going back to Daniel chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar sets up that golden statue that he has made. And the truth is, is that the sinister orchestra of Nebuchadnezzar, this orchestra of idolatry, it demanded that people bowed down and worshipped a golden statue whenever they heard the beckoning music. And in life, where we're at today, there are always things that demand that we bow down, that we be conformed to the world, that we turn from God and we be conformed to the forces of this world. And these things, they come and they demand a tax on the front end. And that tax is that we lower our minds, that we lower our IQ, that we don't think about things critically. We're not transformed daily by the renewing of our mind like the scriptures tell us to be, but instead we just are conformed to this world. These forces, they come demanding that they, they put on their charade, their charade of desirable clothing and that we, we take our hands, we put them over our eyes, we hold our hands over our ears, and we only let a word slip in on occasion if it's one of those carefully selected words that they want us to hear. And they hope that we fall for the music and close our eyes and seal up our ears that we do not know the truth. And when it comes to bowing down to the orchestra of idolatry, it's easy and it does a lot of damage to the soul. The music swells, it's beckoning crescendos, they come and they're wonderful, they have emotions, they have things which sound so beautiful and we want to bow down. And the vengeful king, he is desperate for people to surrender to the music because if word gets out that you don't have to bow down, then his iron grip is fractured. And when we come to this text, we're going to see this orchestra described several times. And while music itself tends to, to be beautiful, if it's to be presented to, to a lot of people and a lot of people like it, one of the things we actually don't know is what the music sounded like here. And the text that I mentioned earlier, that you kind of have to lower your IQ to go along with it, you're going to be telling people that you like this music, whether you do or not, whenever you've got a tyrant in charge. He comes along and he plays the music and you're made to like it. You're made to enjoy it, whether it is actually good or not. So thank you for joining me. Let's open up in prayer and then we're going to get into our study of the Babylonian exile in Daniel chapter 3. And hopefully this will be a, an enjoyable message. Let us pray. A gracious Heavenly Father, as we come together, Lord, wherever we may be, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and minds that we could receive your wisdom, your strength, your encouragement. Lord, I pray that you would give us the firm backbone to stand when the world tells us to bow. Lord, let us have that righteous conviction to know when to be a contrarian. Lord, we know that you, you came. You did not tell people just what they wanted to hear, but you told them the truth of all creation and you revealed the path of salvation, which was radically different than anything this world could offer. Lord, wherever we may be, whether listening in our homes, in our cars, Lord, I pray that you would come, convict us, draw us close to you, give us the moral fortitude that we could stand firm whenever the world wants us to go along with ridiculous and idolatrous things. Lord, as we come to the scripture, open our hearts and minds, and we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So let's jump right into Daniel chapter 3. And as we, we get a little bit further, um, I will go back and examine some of these scriptures more in depth, but... I'm going to read through Daniel 3. I'll have a few breaks in there, but let's get right into it for now. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Durian in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. And they came to assemble together for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. 
And so the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, they assembled together for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. And when they were standing there before the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had made, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, O nations, and O languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the harp, the drum, the trigon, and the entire musical orchestra, you are to bow down and worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And whoever does not bow down and worship immediately shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. It's fascinating. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical orchestra, all the peoples, the nations, and the languages, they fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. It's a fascinating thing built into those few verses there. Nebuchadnezzar, he's king of this massive empire. When you look throughout history, his empire is pretty big. You know, th this is not just he has a small city-state. King Nebuchadnezzar has a massive empire. And the truth is, is that he's not happy just being the king of this. He's not happy just having a golden statue. He's not happy being able to snap his fingers and someone does that, snap his finger over here, someone does something over there. King Nebuchadnezzar, he wants his reign to be so powerful that it comes all the way into your mind, that it changes how you think, that you suddenly, whenever you hear the music, you will bow down. It will alter how you think. It's a brainwashing technique. And we study the book of Daniel not because these stories are unique. This is human behavior. And we as the church, we need to find our backbone and realize the forces of this world, the forces that are self-proclaimed, degenerate reprobates that hate God, they're not in here to share a country, to share a nation, to share a globe with us. They're here to defeat and destroy the church. We as Christians, we have to realize that we must be assertive, have a backbone, that we should not bow down to any of the golden statues that the world has made. This whole notion that says, well, if we take a strong stand on the biblical worldview over here, we don't bring up the fact that these people like death and abortion and they're basically Molech sacrificing, or sacrificing their children to Molech. We think that if we don't have a backbone, we'll have a seat at a table. And by having a seat at a table, we'll have access to things like Hollywood, politics, you, know, you name it, the forces in our culture, that those are the powerful cultures, forces in our culture, and we have to have a seat at the table in order to have influence. It is a lie. Throughout the biblical stories, people have changed the world because God always enacts change by calling out individuals. Last week we looked at Jochebed, a mother who was simply called to give into the natural God-given right to love her children, the God-given job, responsibility of loving her children. She's the mother of Moses, changes the course of history. God comes to Moses um, he doesn't tell him to solve all the problems, just simply be faithful. And he leads the people out of the Exodus. We look throughout history, Mary and Joseph, God comes to them and says, I want you to simply, don't be afraid, get married, you'll raise the son, name him Jesus. God doesn't ask us to solve the problems of the world, but God can use us to change the world, and God can solve the problems of the world, but we just have to have a backbone and be faithful to him. This whole lie that says you need to appease the forces of the world, it's a lie, it's a sham, it is a sham, sham, sham. And it's an easy sham to fall for, and it does a lot of damage to the church and our credibility. Let's get back to our text. In verse 8, we find some Babylonian snitches and tattletales coming to do what snitches and tattletales do. In verse 8, accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward to denounce the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. 
You, O king, you have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical orchestra, they shall fall down and worship the golden statue that you have made. And whoever does not fall down and worship the golden statue that you have made shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods and they do not worship the golden statue that you have made. And then verse 13 gets, gets really good. This is where the human behavior is really, really on display here. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have made? And in verse 15, you find a scripture that is quoted all throughout history. And I mean all throughout history. It's quoted in the Roman Empire when Christians were accused of atheists and brought in before a judge. And it's even quoted here in America in the year 2020. And we're going to come back and study this verse in more in depth as the, the sermon goes on. But for now, I want you to just listen to it for the first time um, as we we're reading through this chapter and keep it close to your mind. Because this is Nebuchadnezzar's test. So in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical orchestra, to bow down and worship the golden statue that I have made, all is well and good. But if you do not bow down and worship the golden statue that I have made, you will be immediately thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? That might be one of the most quoted verses in scriptures. It takes on different forms, but the sentiment is always there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered the king. And I want you all to listen to what their answer is, because we live in a day and age where no one ever has accountability. You have one group of people who says, this is good, this is bad. They change their mind, they flip-flop up all over the place. Hence why we as people, we don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, throughout the world, our leaders, they haven't taken stands. And the church should be on the forefront of taking moral stands. We, we should be clearly giving people instruction on what is biblical and not having this weak backbone, you know, squish mentality that doesn't take a stand and says, well, we need a seat at the table, so we're not going to take a stand. We have, as a society, not been clear on things um, and people go back in time and they, they change what their, their opinions were in, in the past. They, they kind of play around with the timeline. This is not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. On the front end of this, they have no idea what the outcome is. I want you to hear their biblical worldview. These men, they have a backbone. They know who is the master of all creation. They know who is not. And they know their place in the grand scheme of creation. And let's read this verse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, then, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not bow down to the golden statue that you have made. What is beautiful about that verse is they say God is Lord of all creation. He has the power to deliver us. And he's the, the author of life. If he chooses to deliver us, that's up to him. If he chooses not to deliver us, that's also up to him. We're not here to make decisions for God. We know he has the power to do so, and we're here to serve him. 
And they look at Nebuchadnezzar and they say, regardless of the outcome of this, we're not bowing down to you. We're not. You don't even have to let the music play. Don't even, don't even you know, have the score be brought before the orchestra. Don't even bother with that. We're not doing it. No. This isn't them going back and changing history or anything. And on the front end, they had the biblical worldview. And that is so important. So important. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace be heated up seven times more than was customary. And he ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. And so the men, they were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And because the king's command was urgent, the furnace, it was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Now what we find going on, interesting in this text, is that a decree went out to all people, all languages, all nations, if you hear the music, you have to bow down. And if you don't, you go into the blazing fire. Everybody's supposed to be living by that. So the whole implied logic of that is, if you bow down, you don't go into the blazing fire, right? Well, guess what? The men that didn't bow down, that were ordered in the blazing fire, they did get taken to the fire. We'll get to what happens to them. I'll give you a little spoiler. They don't die. Um, the men who were told, you bow down, you don't go to the fire, guess what? They died. By what? The fire. And Nebuchadnezzar may not order them be executed, but they get burned up just in the collateral chaos of tyranny. You never can appease a tyrant, folks. Anybody that tells you, well, don't take a stand so you can have a seat at the table. You need to say something which is more palatable to the masses. You know, bow down to whatever demands they have. It is a lie. It is a lie from the pits of hell, and it is a lie from the manipulative mouths of people like Nebuchadnezzar who don't want you to be at the table at all. They know that if they can get you to come over there and emasculate yourself at the table, you'll be no threat to them in the future. The reason why they tell you this is because people, you read this scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not the only Israelites there in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. But they might be the only three men that don't bow down. There are a lot of young Jewish men that were taken along with Daniel and his three friends. There were a lot of them that said, fine, we'll eat the royal rations. There are a lot that say, we'll, we'll do what you want, Nebuchadnezzar. And guess what? They have no impact on history. God comes to us. He doesn't ask Joseph and Mary to, to solve the problems of the world. He says, Mary, you're going to have a son. The Holy Spirit will conceive a son. You will name him Jesus. Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as your husband. You will raise this son named Jesus just as a Jewish boy. God doesn't ask us to solve the problems of the world, but guess what? When we have a backbone and we stand up for the things of God, starting with individuals, with families, God changes the course of history. You can do more as an individual to change the course of history by having a backbone with a biblical worldview than you ever could as a politician, you ever could as somebody who's a Hollywood actor. You can. Yes, there will come moments where people, they get so absorbed in the moment and they think, oh, the politics of the day, it matters more than anything else. Ladies and gentlemen, I bet if I ask most people, if I went down the street and asked somebody, tell me who was the 37th president of the United States, they probably couldn't tell me. Who was the 14th? You know, people probably couldn't tell you. Why? Because those things, they matter in a moment, but they get forgotten just like that. Who was the king of England 300 years ago? Could you tell me? 
Probably not. But yet we tell our children the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We may not be able to tell you the near year of Nebuchadnezzar or anything like that because those details, they are of little importance compared to the truth that comes from them. Yes, there is real history connected with the Bible. Yes, there are real people that are illustrated through these stories. But the truth is, this is human behavior and how God works in the world. God enacts change when we realize that we have power. And it's not power that's of our own making. It's power that comes from God. We were all created in the image of God. And having free will is a gift of God. But the orchestra of idolatry, it wants you to pay the tax of lowering your IQ, believing dumb stuff, and surrender your free will. It's the tax. That's the, the entrance to the county fair for the orchestra of idolatry. It's the ticket you pay. Verse 24. And this is after... His guards have been burned up. This is after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the throne in the fire. Let's find out what happens. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, Was it not three men that were thrown into the fire? They answered the king, Oh, true, O oh, king. And he replied, But I see four men. They are walking around, unbound, in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has an appearance like that of a god. And then... In verse 26, King Nebuchadnezzar, he approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come here, come out. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and all the officials of the provinces, they gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies. Interesting thing there. The fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads were not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and even the smell of fire did not come from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels to deliver his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. They shall have their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who can deliver in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Fascinating thing there. Nebuchadnezzar, he's like a lot of tyrants. They, they like to twist the narrative and control the narrative. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't come out and admit that he's defeated. Instead, he just incorporates that into its, his narrative of tyranny, where he says, okay, well, if you utter blasphemy against this God, tyranny for you. Tear down your house, destroy you, tyranny for you over there and you over there too. Nebuchadnezzar is still trying to control the narrative because he's a tyrant and that's what they do. They never admit they're wrong. They never admit anything like that. And we as Christians, we have to do, to do better than someone like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and we have to be willing to be a contrarian to people who are like Nebuchadnezzar. And the orchestra of idolatry is the means by which this whole story plays out. The reason why we talk about this is because this is such a beautiful story. Whenever we, we read and we learn about the, the orchestra of idolatry, we're reminded that it's something that's beautiful. It has its charade. It has its clothes that are, they sound great. They look great. They're appetizing. And you know, even if they're not actually good, you're told to believe that they are. You're, you're told by the world that this is what you should be liking, so therefore you like it. And you're put in a position where even if that music was terrible, because let's face it, um, sometimes music is bad, um, then 
Who cares? You tell people you like it. You're made to care about this. You're made to love it. Having eyes to see and ears to hear is vital to spiritual health. The world conditions us to listen to the music of the orchestra of idolatry, to be alert for its beckoning sounds, to censor our own minds so that we will not think. The orchestra has its powerful crescendos. They rise up, stirring, stirring your nerves, taking you to the edge of your chair, saying, listen to the music. It's easy, and it does a lot of damage to your soul. The music, it wants us to be conformed to the world and not be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is what God wants. God wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You as an individual, your mind to be transformed. That's what God does. Jesus comes and he says, I want you to be blessed. I want you to be blessed. I want all of you to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And by the way, go and sin no more. I'm not here to be passive and just enable all of you to just do sin. I'm here to bring transformation, a precious gift that is loving and merciful, and also the most serious and severe thing you could ever hear that wants to cut you off from your old ways so that you can really, really be free. Music is beautiful. It is filled with structures that are as true to creation as are the laws of physics. The chords, the scales, they come together with beautiful harmonies. They have harmonic relationships that are eternal truths built into God's creation. Unless we have the airplane coming over, that probably doesn't sound terribly beautiful. But the chords, the scales, the harmonic relationships, they are eternal truths, giving beauty to the creation around us. And at first glance, we might say, well, preacher, music, it is not hard, it's not fixed, it is subjective. I may like this style of music, you may like that one. Recently, I just listened to George Gershwin's opera, Porgy and Bess. It was um, different than anything ever, I'd ever listened to before. Um, I generally like George Gershwin, things like Rhapsody in Blue, American in Paris. You know, we come to music and you might say, Preacher, you like that? I think it's gross. I want to listen to, you know, something that comes on the radio, something we might find on YouTube. And you know what? That's fine. But the truth is, is when you look at music, whether it be pop music, whether it be an opera, whether it be something like Maurice Ravel, String Quartet in F Major, all music is fixed to just a few small rules. And if you'll take a minute, a minute and just walk with me, you'll see how true this is. If you had a cat, you know, a fat cat, you know, the true chonky cat, the absolute unit, rolls into your house and you've got your piano and its keyboard and it says, well, I think I'll roll around on this keyboard. You know, a hideous plop here and there and the clank and bangs on the piano's keyboard, it would sound ugly and it would sound hideous. Why? Because it is ugly and hideous. The random slapping of keys is grotesque and nasty. And all beautiful music is held together intact by just a few simple rules. And it's a mysterious thing how great complex melodies, the, the great tonal shifts which stir our nerves, these complex tones, they are produced with harmonic beauty by following a few simple rules. You know, I teach piano, I teach saxophone, a lot of other wind instruments. You start learning the basics, the chords, the scales, which seem rather basic, and especially if you learn something like the saxophone, why do you care about a C chord? Something like C, E, G, why do I need the mathematical equation that makes this work together? But the truth is, is that once you learn those few basic fundamental rules, all music is held together with it. And the music that breaks those rules, we find to be repulsive, to be grotesque and nasty. All music is held together by a few simple rules. And it's part of God's order, it's part of God's creation. And I bring up the fundamental truth of music and this orchestra of idolatry to bring out a truth that is taught to us in this text. Music is beautiful. It is gorgeous. It is part of God's creation. Its laws are as fixed. You can independently learn things about music because 
the rules are actually fairly simple, though it may take many years to learn and to be able to apply them. There's a dark truth taught to us in Daniel 3, and that's that evil comes to imprison the beautiful. Evil comes to enslave the beautiful gifts of God, the wondrous things of God's creation, and to use beauty as a sinister tool for control. Evil comes to force people to put blinders over their eyes, to only see what they are told to see, to put hands over their ears and only allow in carefully selected words, and to only do that when they're signaled to do so. Furthermore, evil knows that it can be effective when it takes the beautiful things and uses them as agents of corruption. That when it corrupts the beauty of God's creation, people can be easily manipulated. Evil knows how effective it is to use the beautiful things of God to convince people that they actually like being controlled. To convince people that the music of the orchestra of idolatry, that it's the true good, it's the true virtue. Evil likes for people to feel good and virtuous as they surrender their emotions over to things that are not good. And we live in a day and age where we're held hostage to fake virtues. And it's one of the things I've been talking a lot about, and I'll go into some more detail right now. And the Daniel chapter 3, it's a fake virtue to bow down to the golden statue. We live in a day and age where you get all these platitudes like, we're in this together. You know what? That's a fake virtue. That has no value. The fact that all these commercials came out instantaneously with this message tells you that that was pre-planned, pre-packaged. And the fact that you can put it out on the television and everybody like it probably means it's not a real virtue. Whenever you see real virtues enacted in history, guess what? They crucified it. Whenever you see real virtues carried out even by people who aren't the Messiah, but people like Moses delivering people, they look up at Moses and say, Moses, why did you deliver us from Egypt? Were there not enough graves for us there? They look at Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah, why are you building the wall? If a fox were to come up on it, it would fall down. The world hates real virtue. Thus, if Facebook has it easy for you to plaster a little virtue, it's probably not real. And we're held hostage by real virtues, and people don't know what is actually good and evil. This is part of how our society has been designed, where people don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. One of the reasons that the coronavirus has been held in the way that it is is because we don't actually know what fear is. Our society has started calling things fear that are not fear. If you have a dislike for someone or a distaste, that's not fear. Disagreement is not fear. Even things like hatred, it's not the same thing as fear. We live in a day and age where we call everything fear that's not fear. If you have a reservation about doing something, that's not fear, that's a reservation. And when it comes to something which is real fear, then we act like that's not real fear. Like we have a lot of people, even people in the church who say, well, you know, we don't need to be afraid of this. And then they act and all of their decisions line up one for one with fear. They act fearfully even though what's coming out of their mouth is different. And you find this, I mean, the New Testament talks about this. Jesus talks about this. You know, what coming out of their mouth, you know, they think they'll be saved by their words. You know, it's not what comes into the mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of the heart. And you know, you find Paul, John, the epistles, they talk and look at how there's a difference. There's a distinction between what one's attitude is, what comes out of their mouth, and what their real behaviors are, what's going on in the heart. We have a lot of people in our world who have been so brainwashed that fear is dislike or distaste or reservation, that everything's just this pathetic, emasculated struggle going around, that we don't know what real fear looks like. We don't know what a real struggle is in the public discourse. People know this stuff in their personal lives, of course, but the public discourse is held in just this terrible imprisonment 
of fake virtues. You know, we have to structure our things around, well, somebody might bring a lawsuit against us if we do that. All that stuff is garbage and it's grade A trash. We're being held captive by fake virtues. And whenever something real comes along to contend with, people, they're held captive by the fake virtues. And those like Nebuchadnezzar, they float to the top and they take power. And I want to change gears and talk about something here with this golden statue. So I have some friends who have two little girls. And when their oldest was about 10 years old, um, excuse me, when their oldest was about three years, she's, she's getting close to 10 now. When she was about three years old, she made an observation about her dog. This family, they have a German shepherd that has grown up with their, their oldest. The German shepherd is named Ellie, um, Eleanor. And Ellie's a pretty big dog. So if you can imagine like a, a full-grown German shepherd, who she's a big girl um, compared to a three-year-old girl. You know, the dog's quite a bit bigger, has a lot more mass than the little girl does. But when they were three years old, um, Cameron, when she was three, she was looking at a dog who was about her age. She looks at Ellie, who's this big, full-grown dog, and she looks over at her dad's Mustang, and she says, you know, Ellie can't drive because she has no hands and no feet. And Cameron, she's looking at the dog, she's looking at the car, says, no hands, no feet, no driving. You know, it's actually a very logical thing. It's, it's, it's a cute moment. It's fascinating to see how children, their brain, it starts to, to reason and interact with the world. And there's something about this, though. When we compare a child saying no hands, no feet, no driving, when we compare that to the adults in Daniel chapter 3. Because by contrast, this moment illustrates a sad truth about the adults in Daniel 3. Because the three-year-old's ability to think and reason was completely gone from these adults in Daniel 3. An adult should be able to look at a, a golden statue and say, no soul, no being, no will, no worship. Adults should easily be able to see that. But they don't because you know what the tax is of the orchestra of idolatry? You lower your IQ. You lower your IQ to, an, to a level where a three-year-old would be insulted by your reason. If you tried to tell a three-year-old that, you know, the dog, she can drive, even though she doesn't have hands and feet, the, the, the three-year-old would be insulted by that. Like, you're, you're talking down to me. A three-year-old can figure out that doesn't make sense. But the golden statue and the orchestra of idolatry has a sad truth. It lowers people's IQ to a point where they cannot even reason with the world on the level of a three-year-old. A child can see that it's logical that a dog cannot drive because it lacks hands and feet. However, those in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon... They allowed music to control them to a point where they would not permit themselves to see how foolish it was to bow down to a golden statue. Statue has no soul. It is no will, no being. It is nothing compared to God. And simply stated, it doesn't make sense for you to bow down to it. It makes you a fool to stop doing what you're doing, to stop living your life. And see, that's one of the things with fake virtues is people say, well, what harm does it do? What harm does it do if the music plays, you bow down to it? Well, the thing is, is it, is it comes in, replaces other things in your life. We only have so much time, so much energy. It makes us bad stewards of our time when we're held hostage by fake virtues. It actually really does matter when you buy into fake virtues. It really, really, really does. Because it, it closes off your eyes to see and closes off your ears to hear. It does damage when you buy into fake virtues and you allow a society to be run by fake virtues. Because it lowers your IQ. We must discipline ourselves to say no to the orchestra of idolatry. The people in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, they wouldn't do it. It made them stop doing their work, stop living their lives, because whenever the fake virtue come out, they had to bow down. But this is what people did. 
It is. It made them dumb. The orchestra of idolatry, it makes you unwise and dumb. It's very sad. And the people of God, those of you listening to this, we, we must rise up. God wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We must discipline ourselves to say no to the orchestra of idolatry, to say no to the manipulative music of sin. Music itself, it is beautiful and a gift of God's creation. But even though it's part of God's order, it can still be corrupted by people who want to take advantage of it, people who will enslave it and corrupt it. It has laws that are as fixed as the laws of physics, like gravity out here. But we must discipline ourselves to focus on the beauty of God's creation and its music, rather than the wicked forces that try to seize our mind. And again, this is Nebuchadnezzar trying to get deep inside your mind. Nebuchadnezzar wants to infect your mind. He wants to control all you think because that's how tyrants are. They're not happy just having their statue over here and saying, well, you can go, you know, study the Torah over there. No, 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 no. They want to control how you think. They want you to be Pavlov's dog so that whenever they throw out the next news conference, the next, you know, whatever it is, the next fake virtue plastered on Facebook, whatever it is, you'll bow down to that. You'll be quick to put it on your page and you think that you've done something good. They want us to do that rather than being strong men and women of God who are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Nebuchadnezzar's not happy till he controls how people think. And to an extent, the music is a metaphor for all beautiful things that are turned into manipulative things. Things that actually are good and virtuous, but then are twisted and contorted into something which is wildly deceptive. I mean, just off the change deceptive. Things that try to get us to bow down by masking is something that is good, something that we do like. The scriptures teach us that the antidote to this predicament is quite simple, although it requires a solid backbone. We must be willing to reject the ungodly demands of the world, regardless of how unpopular they are. We must be willing to stand up when the world tells us to, to, to bow, to sell off our virtues and bow down. You know, in the church, we need to realize that the New Testament, the Old Testament, the people of God are never called to be conformed to the world. In fact, throughout a large portion of Scripture, the people of God are meant to be contrarian against the things of the world. You know, I, I do find it interesting that when we make decisions as a church, and look, I, I love the Church of the Nazarene, I love the Christian church here in America, and the only reason I criticize it in any way is because I want us to do better, to rise up, because I know each and every one of us is capable of rising up. Because none of us are capable of purchasing our own salvation. None of us are capable of achieving sanctification by ourselves. And the gift of sanctification and salvation, they're open to all of us. Any man or woman can receive the great gifts from God. We're all on the same playing field here. We can all rise up because the gift is not by our own power. You don't have to be somebody who's who's, you know, wrote a doctoral dissertation on something. That's a lie. That's a sham. You can have opinions on things and be transformed by the removing of your mind because God has made that gift available to all of us. We can all rise up. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it reminds us that people, they want to bow down. They, they're taught to like being controlled. And I always find it interesting when the church in America, they're willing to take risks, but only risks that emasculate us. Only take risks that Line up with the thing that the world is saying. Line up with the local ordinances. Line up with what the government is recommending you do. While at the same time, there are a lot of people who are self-proclaimed degenerate reprobates who are atheists and they tell you, if you're a Christian, you don't have a place in society. If you're a Christian, you don't have a place in this political party. If you have a biblical worldview, you don't get to serve in this place. You don't get to have a voice here. You don't get to speak in schools. 
To sit around and emasculate ourselves by saying, listen to the government or ordinances, while the same people are telling you, if you have a biblical worldview, get out, go to the blazing fire, is absolutely ridiculous. And if we want to have any credibility with the future generations, we're going to have to find our backbone, which, again, God can give a backbone to every one of us. If we want to have an impact in the future generations, we're going to have to actually start giving people an alternative to the worldview of the world. Give people an alternative to the spirit of the age. People are hungry. They're hungry. They look at the world and they see that it's all grade A garbage. They want something different. And guess what? The Holy Scriptures, they give us that different worldview. They give us that hope for all eternity. They give us the pathway to salvation, to sanctification, to being made perfect, to having excellence in all areas of your life. But we as the church, we kind of want to get mealy mouths and say, well, I can't officiate that, but I need to be there and, you know, take this spineless stance, which is cowardice and garbage. We as the church, we all can be better than this. We all can. We don't teach the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego because they bowed down. We teach the story because they stood up. The world tries to convince us that we will face the worst possible consequences if we refuse the orchestra of idolatry. But Daniel 3 shows us a different fate. The men that refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar were not burned up. However, those that obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command were. Nebuchadnezzar's own soldiers were burned up as they tried to dispose of the men of God. But the men of God, who were told they would face the worst possible consequences, they had a backbone, and guess what? They weren't burned up. Now, on the front end, they didn't know that. On the front end, they clearly said, if we get burned up, we get burned up. But if we don't, we don't. That's up to God. But the truth is, we don't care because we're not bowing down to you, Nebuchadnezzar. You burning us up or not burning us up does not change God's status as the Lord of all creation. It's that simple. Call us names, throw us in the fire. We don't care. Nebuchadnezzar's life, it is clearly marked by idolatry. When the three men of God refuse to bow down, he presents them with the test. And he says to them in Daniel 3.15, and this is that verse that's recorded all throughout human history. He says, now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, the pipe, the whole musical orchestra, to fall down and worship the golden statue that I have made, all is well and good. But if you do not bow down and worship the golden statue that I have made, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will save you now? Throughout human history, this has been the story. It's all over the place. Found it all throughout the 20th century, things with Hitler, Stalin. You look in ancient Rome, the, literally the exact same thing. Christians were accused of being atheists in the um, time of the New Testament. So um, for all of those who say the, the Bible tells us to go along with every law that a world, the government's up because God put it there, that's not true. Guess what? In the time of Jesus, there was something called the Pax Deorum where if you lived in the Roman Empire, it was by law that you would serve some of the gods of Rome. Guess what you don't see Jesus doing? Guess what you don't even see the Pharisees doing? Serving the gods of Rome. This whole idea that you go along with something because it's there, it's not biblical. Jesus doesn't have his little... Um, sacrifice to, to Diana or anything like that. It doesn't happen. What we find, though, in the New Testament is that a lot of Christians, they were taken to a judge because they were accused of being atheist. And the judge would sit there and he said, I have the table. It's got the little statue. Burn the incense. You know, bake the cake. And all is well and good. But if you don't burn the incense, if you don't bake the cake, 
I'm sending you to the amphitheater, and who is the God that will save you now? Here in America in, in 2020, there's a lady in Texas. Many of you may have heard this story. She and They had ordered that all businesses of certain sorts would be closed down, and as you know, I've said quite clearly, the whole language of essential versus non-essential is from the, from the pits of hell. The devil and all of his demons laugh at that when they see somebody commit suicide because they were deemed non-essential because it's implied that if your job's non-essential, so are you. All that's from the pits of hell, um, and the church should never use that language. Whenever we find that judge, and he has this lady brought in who is deemed non-essential, and he tells her, he says, you, you will admit that you are wrong. You will bow down. Your will, you will bow down to the decree that we have made, and all is well and good. But if you do not bow down, I will throw you into prison. And you can almost hear the next line coming out of his mouth is, and who is the God that will save you now? It's evil. It's, it's from the pits of hell. Even when we look at this coronavirus, it's really exposing who people are, their, their worldview. Um, I've said all along the coronavirus is like an alligator in the yard. Yes, it's a real problem. It's an apex predator that wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But guess what? Whenever you get one, you get a lot of them. The world's not cut and dry. You can't just say there's one alligator when the one telling you to look at the alligator is also an alligator and you've got all these other tyrannical things going on. Um, one of the things which I think is just absolutely crazy is that we've accepted the premise that with the coronavirus, you can't treat people like they're adults and give them respect as having personal ability to make decisions for themselves. Say this is a, a deadly virus, one of the deadliest viruses we have in human history. Why is the antidote to that that you treat people like they're children? You know, drunk drivers have been a thing. I hate this notion that people come and they say, well, you're a pastor. You haven't been micromanaging people and telling them, you know, stay, stay in your car. Don't touch anyone six feet apart. Why, why is your business at Walmart? Why don't you have the stickers on the floor? You know, forget the fact that a lot of it makes no sense. You can go to Burger King, suck the corona infected colonies out of a burger bun while you're eating it in your mouth, but don't get near one another. You know, that doesn't make sense. This whole premise, say, I'll grant, say, say this is a extraordinarily virus that is, that is deadly to all ages. I mean, we, we kind of know that, that it's extremely deadly where it is deadly, but it is a coronavirus, and we actually have a lot of history of studying these. Um, say, this new strand, it is, it is deadly to all ages. Why is the antidote to that that you as an individual can't make decisions for yourself? You know, we have drunk drivers. We allow people to make decisions for themselves all the time. This whole notion that you have to micromanage people like a, a tyrant to the micro scale is absolutely ludicrous. And they want the church to go along with micromanaging their people and not respecting people and their ability to make decisions. And that's one of the things which makes no sense about this. And I think we, it's one of the things which makes you realize that there's something going on here beyond an honest response to the, to the virus. Um, it certainly is an alligator in the yard. It's a very real apex predator. But even if it's the worst apex predator we've ever seen, and again, we've seen plagues that are, are much worse than this, the response that is wise and prudent and truly of God doesn't seize people's personal responsibility from them as individuals. It doesn't turn people into children and talk down to them. It doesn't demand they pay the tax of the golden statue where you lower your IQ, you lower your free will. It doesn't demand that. We can be wise and prudent and we can persevere through this. We can let people make decisions. We can protect those who are most vulnerable. We can be wise about this. We can navigate these waters. We can find ways to help those who are sick. 
without being liars and going along with the spirit of the age, which is not interested in life. Daniel 3 is not unique. Evil likes to have a test, to have assurance that people have truly forsaken their eyes to see and ears to hear truth. Evil likes having assurance that the people it controls will not think clearly, that they will be conformed to the manipulation and not be a contrarian and follow the righteous path of God. Nebuchadnezzar, like all agents of tyranny, is desperate for these men to bow down because his iron grip is fractured. And if word gets out that people don't have to bow, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have the power he did before. So we must call the bluff of evil. Now realize this message has gone on quite long. We have to call the bluff of evil in our world. The coronavirus, it is a real virus. It's a real thing. But as I've said all along, just because a lot of things might be put on hold, evil is not. And that's why the whole language of essential, non-essential is, is evil, because it gives great advantage to evil. It, it allows terrible things to fester and to grow. And we as the church, we need to have our imagination to be on the forefront of this, that we can bless people, that we can protect those who are, who are most vulnerable, that we can go out to the world and we can be a blessing. But being a blessing doesn't mean you bow down to the golden statue that someone has made. That's wicked. That just makes you... Um, well, it, it's sad. It, it makes people into puppets of, of tyrants throughout history. So as we close, I want us to think about this prayer that says, God, make me a blessing that I can bless others. That, that we, throughout our day, we would say things like the Lord's Prayer, and we would also have prayers that say, Lord, make me a blessing so that I can bless others. So as we close, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. But as you go throughout your day, I want you to constantly be thinking about how can I have a firm backbone and understand that being a blessing is not just being an enabler. But how can we have a firm backbone and want to bless others? So let us pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. And I'll bring this over so we can kind of see that golden statue. And with that, God love you and have a blessed day.